Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. And the rest of you can open your Bibles, please, to the book of Mark. And we are going to pick up where we left off in Mark. We are still in chapter 3, finishing chapter 3 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a paperback Bible underneath one of the chairs nearby. You can find that Bible and open to page 489, page 489. Um, Before we get started, I want to let you know that um, we are, as a a church, getting ready to kind of have our ministries ramping back up as we look to the fall. That'll be happening slowly. You'll be hearing announcements Uh, particularly during the month of August about ministries getting started. But one thing we always do at New Life during the month of July is we we pause our discipleship hour Sunday mornings in our youth ministries just to give volunteers and everybody a little bit of a break. But that's going to be starting up again here very soon. So um, the uh, adult Sunday school or discipleship hour classes will begin again on August 14. So not this coming Sunday, but the next, August 14. And we're going to start um, with a class that I will uh, deliver or conduct just to give a review of what happened at our general assembly meeting in our denomination back in June. So um, <clears throat> I was sent there as a, as a delegate by our session, and so lots of things to report on decisions that were made, particularly with regard to some of the sexual identity issues that have been kind of front and center in denominational discussions. So if you're interested in knowing where we are as a denomination and kind of where we're headed, I would love to have you join us. So that's August 14, 9 a.m. in the Fellowship Hall. Um, Children's classes also will begin August 14th. Children's Discipleship Hour classes, August 14th. And then again, we'll be giving you more information about other Discipleship Hour classes and other ministries beginning uh, in the coming weeks. Well, about a week ago, it was the end of last week, uh, Mary and I were able to go to Cincinnati um, because I was asked to conduct a wedding for my niece. And this was uh, my niece on Mary's side of the family, the daughter of Mary's brother. And so we went to Cincinnati, and uh, it was really a a good time. Wedding went well. Uh, They said their vows, said I do. I signed the marriage certificate, and off they went to live happily ever after. It was a successful wedding, but it was just a good time for us to be back together as a family. Um, Really great to see Mary's siblings, her brother, two sisters, and um, one thing you note as you get older, I think this is fairly typical, as you get older, families get together less often, and there are really two major occasions that bring families together, and that's marriages and funerals. But whenever that occasion happens, you know, depending on, I guess, the health of your family, generally speaking, it's a a good time. It's a fun time. It's wonderful to reconnect with family, these relationships that have been going on for so many years. Family is very important to us, isn't it? I mean, I think that's kind of stating the obvious. There was a survey, a poll conducted several years ago asking Americans what they pray about most often. And on that list were like problems and difficulties, of course, um, future prosperity, people pray for. But number one on the list was family. That's what Americans 
pray about the most. Family is important to us. But family is also the occasion for sorrow. Sometimes family is the occasion for problems and difficulties. Sometimes we disagree with members of our family. We have trouble reconciling. We find ourselves estranged from family members. Sometimes moms and dads don't stay together and there's divorce. Sometimes parents outlive their children. Sometimes there's verbal, physical abuse. And there are some people who long for a certain kind of family and and they they never get it and they live in constant sadness and disappointment about that. All of this makes us long. I think all of us in our hearts have this longing for a perfect family. Just a place where we know we belong. A a family, a, a group, a community of people that is absent of all the dysfunction that we deal with in this fallen world. We all want a family. One of the great blessings of the Christian faith is that it offers to you a family, the family of God, an eternal family. And that's our topic today. As I mentioned, we're going through the book of Mark, and uh, we're just going through this one passage at a time. So last time, which was two weeks ago, we considered two passages that were separated because they were both about the same topic, which was Jesus and his relationship with Satan or, or the demonic world. So that means today we also have two passages that are separated. Um, So we'll take a look at Mark 3, 13 to 21, and then we'll skip ahead to 31 to 35. And the topic of both is Jesus and family. So if you can stand, please do so, and let me read this passage to you. Mark 3, starting with verse 13. And he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon, the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home. And the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. So skipping forward to verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Holy Spirit, would you please come and open our hearts and minds to behold wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. 
So a very simple outline for us <clears throat> this morning, uh, just two points today. Uh, the first one we're going to consider is Jesus and His biological family. Jesus and His biological family. So the context here, just to get you up to speed, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in Mark, but you'll remember that Jesus in His ministry has been going around healing people, casting out demons, teaching. He's been attracting crowds, tons of crowds, coming after Him, following Him. And as we look to verse 20, we see that He went home. Now, home for Jesus at this time is in a place called Capernaum. This is where He was living. And we see in verse 21 that Jesus' family, His biological family, heard of it. They, they had been hearing about what Jesus had been doing. Now, Jesus' family lived in Nazareth. Nazareth would have been about 25 miles southwest of Capernaum. Um, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Recall, it might be easy to get these towns mixed up. Born in Bethlehem, brought up in Nazareth, now living in Capernaum. But his family is still back in Nazareth. And they hear about what Jesus has been doing. Word gets to them about Jesus' teaching, and he's casting out demons and saying these things about the kingdom of God. He's in trouble with the Pharisees and the scribes. And their conclusion is, at the end of verse 21, he's nuts. <laughs> Jesus is crazy. He's, he's out of his mind. And so what we're reading about here in verses 20 and 21 is the decision of the family to go from Nazareth to Capernaum to get Jesus, to seize him, it says. That's another word for arrest. The family wants to come get Jesus, maybe because they're concerned about the reputation that the family is, is gaining because of these crazy things that Jesus is doing. So they come, they want to gain control of him, grab him, take him back to Nazareth and put this whole thing to arrest. So what we see here is uh, Jesus <laughs> uh, seems to be unable to avoid trouble, right? I mean, he's had scribes and Pharisees after him. Now he has members of his own household, his biological family set against him, offering up this opposition. Well, who is it who comes from Jesus' family? If we skip ahead to verse 31, <clears throat> we see that Jesus mother has come. That's his mother, Mary. We see that his brothers have come as well. You don't have to turn here now, but Mark 6, 3 lists four brothers, four different names of Jesus' brothers. Not sure if this is all four of them referred to here in verse 31, but his brothers have come, and we might ask as we look at this, where's Joseph? Where's Joseph? Well, we don't know. Maybe he's back in Nazareth. Some commentators think perhaps he has passed away by now. We just don't read anything more about Joseph after the birth narrative. And so, uh, in any case, he's not here. Now, <clears throat> as you notice here, we have Jesus clearly with some biological brothers. Now, I guess technically they would be half-brothers, right? Because we believe in the virgin birth, that is that... Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary without the involvement of Joseph, his father. So technically, I guess, half-brothers, but one thing we might want to note here is just kind of an observation. 
as something we can conclude from this. As we think about um, standard Catholic teaching, some of you have been brought up in Catholic churches and might know that uh, according to Catholicism, Mary, Jesus' mother, was born as a virgin, excuse me, born without sin, and according to Catholic teaching, she remained without sin and then conceived of Jesus as a virgin. But Catholic teaching would also believe in what's called the perpetual virginity of Mary. They would say that Mary never had sexual relations in her entire life. And so that's kind of tied up with their view of what they believe to be Mary's sinlessness. Now, I, I would just say that that conclusion is hard to draw when we look and see that clearly Jesus had brothers. So we don't know for sure if these brothers were born to Mary, but maybe they just came from Joseph's side somehow, we're not sure, but it would sure seem to be a sound conclusion that Mary was not perpetually a virgin. And we certainly know that Mary was not perpetually sinless. Uh, it says in Luke 1.47 that Mary, speaking about the Christ child in her womb, and she refers to him as my Savior. Sinless people don't need a Savior. Mary needed a Savior, just like you and I need a Savior, because we are all together sinners. So, a conclusion I think we can draw here perhaps from this mention of Jesus' brothers. But all of this kind of raises an interesting question, which is what must it have been like to live in the same household with the Son of God? <laughs> I mean, what must it have been like to have as your brother the Messiah? Uh, what was that like sitting at the dinner table every night with the Son of God across the table, uh, the Son of God sleeping in the bunk bed <laughs> above you? And sometimes people ask questions, you know, did Jesus win all the games that they played? Did, did Jesus ever spill his milk when he was a, a little kid? Um, sometimes people raise these questions. They're kind of silly. They're inconsequential. Actually, we don't know the answer to these kinds of questions. But one thing we do know, according to John 7, 5, is that his brothers did not believe in him. I mean, that's kind of a startling thing to consider, isn't it? These brothers in the same household with the Son of God, day after day, year after year, seeing Him, relating to Him, being blessed by Him, and they didn't believe. You know, sometimes people think, oh, if God would just show Himself to, to me, you know, if Jesus would just come and appear to me, then I would believe. Yeah, don't count on that. Because <laughs> if there's anybody that should have believed by being in the presence of Jesus, it would have been His brothers, but they they did not believe. And so I think a conclusion that we can draw here from all of this is that biological connections are secondary to spiritual loyalties. Biological connections are secondary to spiritual loyalties. So <clears throat> in other places in the gospel, Jesus, Jesus mentions this kind of thing. These are kind of uncomfortable passages to read, honestly. But look what he says. This is in Mark 13. We'll get to this, God willing, eventually. But Jesus here, speaking of uh, probably the destruction of Jerusalem, looking ahead to AD 70. <clears throat> but he says, brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father is child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. 
He's saying there's going to come a time when because of Jesus and because of a person's profession of faith in him, it will create this dissension within the biological family, so much so that they'll be turning each other over because of the offense they take in Jesus. Here's another example, Matthew 10. Jesus says this, don't think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Wow, what do we do with this? Now, one thing I think we need to say or notice very clearly is that in these passages, Jesus is not encouraging division. He's not commanding exhorting us to seek dissension in our families. That's not the point. That's what the cults do. Generally, when you see a cult, you'll have various marks of a cult. One is aberrant teaching. They generally take the Bible and distort it in some significant way. That's one mark of a cult. There's generally a a very strong charismatic personality at the center. And another mark of the cult is they want to set you against your family. They, They want to estrange you from your family. They, they want to say, see, if you commit to us, then you have to cast off your family. That's not what Jesus is saying here. And we know that because as we look through the rest of Scripture, we see things like the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother. Couldn't be clearer. We're going to get to Mark 7 in a little while, and in Mark 7, Jesus actually admonishes the Pharisees because they very cleverly take their money and devote it to the temple and neglect their aging parents. And Jesus says, that's not acceptable. You should be caring for your mom and dad in their old age. And how about Jesus hanging on the cross where there he is in the most painful humiliation, dying for our sins. He looks down and beholds his mother and says, John, take care of her. Jesus loved his mother. Jesus wanted to honor his mother, wanted his mother to be cared for. So we can't conclude from Scripture that we should seek division within our families. What Jesus is saying here, I think, in chapter 3 and in these other passages is that when you become a Christian and when you start calling Jesus Savior and Lord, the natural consequence of that might be division within the biological family. Might be. Because the family, your family, who are not believers, are just not going to understand the way you now live and the things that you believe. And they very well might find your views objectionable. So when it becomes known that um, you make it a priority to be in church on Sunday mornings, when they come to realize that you believe that God actually speaks to us through the Bible, that the Bible is God's Word, and, and when you Uh, make it known that that you believe that men, women, and children are are sinful people, actually not basically good, but under rightfully the condemnation of God apart from Christ. When people learn that you believe that the only hope for reconciliation with our Creator is the death of the Son of God, that He would bleed on the cross for your sins. When it becomes known that you believe that that's actually the only way that anybody has any hope of going to heaven, when people start to know what you think about sexuality, when people begin to know what you believe about the sanctity of unborn life, they might think you're crazy. 
just like Jesus' family thought of him. We're not pursuing that. We're not seeking to make that happen. We don't relish it when it does happen, but it might happen because our spiritual loyalties need to transcend. They're more important than our biological connections. And we can see that here in the way Jesus deals with his family, which moves us to the second point, which is Jesus and his spiritual family. Jesus and his spiritual family. Reviewing the context here, remember where we are. Jesus is in this household. Uh, His family have come up from Nazareth. His family are standing outside. They can't get past all of the crowds. It's kind of noticeable that Jesus doesn't really go out of his way to make a way for them. You know, doesn't really invite them in. Just honestly, just on the surface of it, seems a little cold. Why why isn't Jesus welcoming his family? Who knows how long it's been since he's seen them. But again, what Jesus is doing here is he is taking an opportunity to teach something very significant about the importance of his spiritual family. And so we see that in in two ways here. The first thing we see about Jesus and his spiritual family is that some are given a special authority. So let's back up to verses 13 to 19, the first part of the passage that, that I read. Some are given a special authority, namely the apostles. So we see here at the beginning of verse 13, he went up um, on a mountain and um, he called to him those whom he desired. Come an emphasis here on, on Jesus' sovereign choice. He chooses some. How many? Twelve. He chooses twelve. So this is kind of another name for the apostles, the twelve. You might say, why twelve? Well, there were twelve tribes of Israel that were the foundation of the covenant community in the Old Testament. It would seem that what Jesus is doing here is he's reconstituting the people of God with a new set of twelve, that is, these twelve apostles. And we notice the purpose for which Jesus is choosing these twelve. Verse 14, he appointed twelve whom he named apostles so that they might, one, be with him, and so that he might, secondly, send them out to preach. And then in verse 15, also, he gives them special authority to cast out demons. So the basic idea here is that Jesus is calling to himself a very close-knit small group of intimate friends with whom he's going to spend extended time and to whom he is going to give special teaching so that they are the recipients of Jesus' truth and revelation. And once receiving that, then these apostles will be sent out. And the purpose of them being sent out is to teach and proclaim what they have learned from Jesus their special authority being recognized by the fact that they're doing things like casting out demons. And as they do that, people see these are people who have been sent by God, sent by Jesus. And as they preach and teach, what they're doing is laying the foundation upon which the church of Jesus Christ would then be built and would expand throughout the world. That's the purpose of the apostles. And we see this referenced in Ephesians 2. Paul says, you're no longer strangers and aliens, speaking to believers in Ephesus, but you 
are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, that's a reference to the church, which is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The apostles are building a foundation. Now, if you'll notice as you look through the rest of the New Testament, you don't see apostles being raised up again. You see it in Acts chapter 1, but after that, that, that's it. What you see instead is elders and deacons being appointed, but not apostles. And so the implication here is that the office of apostle is phased out. The office of apostle is temporary. These 12 who are given a special authority are only given that authority to lay this foundation. So you'll notice Pastor Brian and I do not call ourselves apostles. <laughs> We're not apostles. And there are no more apostles. They've done their job. Now the church is guided and led by elders and deacons. So then we see the names of all of these um, apostles. Um, we've seen some here who were already um, given to us back in chapter 1 uh, in verse 16. Um, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. Remember we talked about that, Simon. Jesus changed his name to Peter. Um, so uh, James and uh, John, verse 17, we also heard about them in chapter 1. So some we're familiar with. You see other people like uh, Matthew listed in verse 18. That's the author of one of the other Gospels. Of course, we see some of notorious reputation. Verse 19, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him, also one of the original apostles. But we also see some people that we know really nothing about. There's this guy named Thaddeus, listed in verse 18. I mean, quite an honor to be called an apostle, but frankly, we don't know anything about him. So some of these guys we know a lot about. Some of these guys we don't know anything about. But one thing we do know about all of these men is that they were absolutely transformed by their time with Jesus that they were radically different. And we know that because as we look ahead to Acts chapter 4, these are the religious uh, Jewish authorities. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, two apostles, when they saw how bold they were, perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they didn't have anything unique in their education or skill level, they weren't extraordinary people, they are common, regular people, just like you and me, just like you and me. They were astonished, and they recognized that these men had been with Jesus. That, that's how they knew there was something different about it. They just knew that the only thing to account for this is that these men had been with Jesus. I mean, that ought to be an encouragement to you. Maybe you are uneducated and common, <laughs> just like I am. But you know what? People can look at you in your life and be astonished if you've been with Jesus. Now, you might think, well, how can I be with Jesus? Jesus is resurrected and ascended to the Father. Well, there is a way to be with Jesus, and that is through prayer and by hearing Him from His Word. That's how you be with Jesus. You talk to Him. You bear your heart to Him, and then you listen to Him speak to you in His Word, and then you seek to walk with Him by faith. If you do that, you too will be transformed. You don't have to be an apostle to be transformed. You don't have to be an apostle to have people be astonished. You just have to be with Jesus. So, that's what we see about these 12 who are given this special authority. This is a limited group, and so we see 
uh, the second aspect of a spiritual family. Some given special authority, but all are called to do the will of God. So, let's go back to verses 31 to 35. <clears throat> Jesus' family, again, they have arrived at the house. They're outside the house, and uh, there's this crowd that's keeping them from getting to the house. And so the crowd notices this, verse 32. They're sitting around him, and they say to Jesus, hey, your mother and your brothers are here, and they are looking for you. And then Jesus responds, as he often does in kind of a confounding way. We just don't expect him to say this, but verse 33, he says, who are my mother and my brothers? Now, of course, on an earthly level, he knows that his mother is Mary. He knows who his brothers are, but he's raising a more significant question here about his spiritual family. He says, who are my mother and my brothers? And he goes on, verse 34, looking about those who sat around him. So here's all these people following him. Uh, you know, we don't know how many of them were genuine believers or not, but here they are, they're seeking him. And looking around at all those who are sitting around him, he says, here they are, here's my mother, and here's my brothers. And then verse 35, Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. That's how you become part of Jesus' spiritual family. You seek to do his will. Now, that raises a question. What does that mean? How do we do his will? What is it to do the will of God? The first thing is this. If we just stay within the context of the book of Mark, we might go back to chapter 1 and remember what Jesus said when his earthly ministry began. The very first thing that he declared was this. Repent and believe the gospel. That's what he said. If you want to know how to do the will of God, you want to know that you are doing God's will, that's where you start. I mean, you might have lots of ideas in your mind about all the wonderful things you're going to do for God in this world, all kinds of grand plans, but if you seek to do them apart from repenting and believing in the gospel, you're not doing God's will. This is where it begins, repentance, believing in the gospel. In fact, if we look at John 6, 29, he says this, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So here's where it begins. You turn from your unbelief. You turn from your sin. You place your faith in Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. And now you know you're on your way to doing the will of God. And it doesn't end there, okay? Salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. But you know how you can tell who have really believed and who haven't? You look at those who are seeking to do the will of God, you look at those who take seriously God's will revealed to us on the pages of Scripture, those who are saying, here is God's Word, here is His will revealed, I want to pattern my life after what God has told me in His Word. That's the one who has truly been saved. It's not a perfect obedience to the will of God, but there is that heart, there is that desire. This is what makes a person a member of God's family. It's not belonging to the human race. A lot of times you'll hear, hear people say that. Like we're all children of God throughout all the world, every single person. That's not what the Bible teaches. We're not all children of God. The ones who are children of God are those who have repented and believed in Jesus as Savior. And when you do that, 
When you receive Christ and you become a Christian, here's the promise from God's Word. Every Christian throughout the entire world and throughout all of human history is now your brother and sister. You have a family that extends all over the globe and throughout all human history, looking to the past and looking to the future. That's an enormous family. People you've never met before are in your family. And it was such a blessing when I was able, by God's grace, to go to China a few years ago and to minister alongside Chinese Christians and thinking, here's these people on the other side of the world living in an entirely different culture, and yet they're my brothers and sisters. I have a sister who is not a, a believer, and it just breaks my heart. We pray for her regularly. Spiritually speaking, she's not my sister. But the person in China who believes in Jesus is. That's the way the family of God works. Look around this room, friends. Here are your brothers and sisters sitting in these chairs today. This is the family of God. People of different backgrounds, people with different interests, people of different races, people with different political beliefs, people who think differently about a number of things, and yet there's this unbreakable bond in the Holy Spirit that exists in this place because we are the family of God. And when we say goodbye, as Pastor Brian was mentioning, we say goodbye to the Bergmans, but we know it's not forever. When we say goodbye, even at death, to a brother or sister in Christ, we know it's not forever because we belong to this eternal spiritual family. So what does it look like to be part of a, of a family like this? You know, on the ground, what does this look like? Well, one thing uh, we do is we meet together. That's what healthy families do. They, they meet together on some regular basis, more than just for weddings and funerals, more than just Christmas and Easter. Every Sunday we meet, every Sunday we have a family gathering as we come here to worship. But we also, as brothers and sisters in Christ, we seek to encourage one another. We, we pursue one another. We listen to one another. We show hospitality to one another. We open up our pocketbooks for one another when we're in need. Sometimes we have to admonish one another, sometimes, but all the time we forgive one another. We rejoice when someone has reason to rejoice. We weep with those who have reason to weep. We carry one another's burdens. We love one another. That's what it is to be part of the family of God. That's what should be happening here. We're not perfect, are we? I mentioned at the start that we all long for a family that is absent of dysfunction. Well, we're not at the point yet, as, even as the family of God, where we have purged the dysfunction from among us. It still exists because we're still sinful people, but God is at work in this place, and He's strengthening us. He's building us up to make us like His Son. And the day is going to come when Jesus comes again, and we're not going to have any more estrangement no more misunderstandings, no more divorce, no more abuse, but we will live for eternity truly, happily 
ever after. I heard this uh, story on NPR radio, of all places. This was several years ago. NPR radio did the story on a Christian ministry that was going into the prisons, and they started these things called God pods. God pods. And these were ways to conduct worship services for the inmates. Uh, and uh, this interview was with this particular inmate who had been released from prison, and he was working at Papa John's, and he was talking about how difficult it can be for inmates who get out of prison and then get back into their normal lives because very often they get connected with people who are living their lives in a certain way that is not healthy for the person just released from prison. And very often, they fall back in the same old habits and end up going back to prison. And so the guy was saying that this is such a challenge. And he mentioned, he says, you know, I can't, he said, I can't go hang out with my sister now because she's addicted to drugs. It's not going to be good for me. And he said, I can't go find my father because my father's passed away. He doesn't exist. But he said right there on NPR radio, but I'm a Christian now. And I have a spiritual family, and they will love me, and they will support me. That's the way this is supposed to work. We are a spiritual family, now and forever. Let's make this true, what we just heard from this man's experience. Let this be true here at New Life, that we love each other, that we support each other, that we come along each other, alongside each other. We refuse to hold grudges against one another. We forgive each other, and we continue this until God dwells with us again when Jesus comes again, and we will be His people forever. God in heaven, thank You for the privilege of being called children of God. Thank You, Father, for saving us, giving us a community. Thank You, Lord, for the brothers and sisters that exist in this room. Thank you, O oh Lord, for the promise that all the dysfunction and the pain and the sorrow that we've experienced in our earthly families will be redeemed and undone, particularly as we find our place in your family. So thank you for that promise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.